right? As the offering plate goes by, some of us, you know, we throw in a couple of bucks, and yet here's a person who not only gives all that they have, but they give all that they are. They give their entire body over to the gospel. They say, there's, there's no limit to which I will not give myself over to this cause. And yet to all of those things, to every single one of them, Paul has the audacity to say, even if all those things are true of you, if you have not love, you gain, what's the word? Nothing. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ, even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Alan Mulder. My wife, Diane, and I have been members of Gateway for the past 41 years. And today, I start my term as service as an administrating elder. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 13. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but, not, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mercies, mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part that we prophe- for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as we walk through it together this morning. Um, 1 Corinthians, as many of you know, is a very famous passage of Scripture. It is the great love passage. Uh, Some of you have heard this read at a wedding. It was recited at a wedding. It was crocheted or knitted as a gift at a wedding, and then we kind of promptly forgot about it. Point is, you've probably heard it at a wedding. But here's the sad thing. I I hate to burst your bubble, but it's not about marriage. It can be used in marriage because it's about love and we need to learn to love each other in the context of our marriages, but it's not about marriage. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are all about love within the context of the body of Christ, within the context of the church, and in particular, how we use our gifts to bless the body of Christ. That's the focus 
that's the goal. So, so just a, a really quick recap of what we learned last week. Paul was identifying a problem that was happening within this little church. And uh, one, it's one that still happens today. I summarized it in your note sheet this way. This is the problem. Christians were using their gifts to boast, not to bless. To boast, not to bless. They believed that their gifts set them apart from others and, and made them um, spiritually superior to all the other people around them. And Paul, he, ju- he just shakes his head and he says, don't you get, don't you see how ridiculous that is? What is there to be proud of in a gift? Something that has been freely given to you for the sake of the people around you, for the sake of the body of Christ. A boxing glove, for instance, doesn't boast in its ability to punch. It knows that the ability is within the hand, within the body. Likewise, a surgeon's glove doesn't boast in its ability to perform operations or to remove tumors. It knows that the skill is in the hand. A paintbrush doesn't boast in its ability to create a beautiful painting. The point is, all of these things, They know that they are simply vessels in the hand of God, of which we all are as well. And so, what we learned last week, Paul said, God gives different gifts to different people for the common good. For the common good. Paul wants to show this little church in Corinth that unless these gifts that God has given you are driven out of love for God and love for God's people, they are totally worthless to God. And you might say, worthless? Really? Justin, is that a bit of an overstatement? You know, is it totally worthless? Isn't there some value even if you have the wrong motivations? No. No, absolutely not. I want you to see the logic of what Paul says here in terms of how we use gifts. So I want us to pick up a couple verses before chapter 13. So if your Bibles are open, chapter 12, start at verse 29 with me. In fact, let's look at verse 27. It says this. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part in it. Look at verse 29. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire these gifts, and yet, here's the point, circle, highlight, underlined, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And then he goes in to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So let's take a closer look at this together. He starts this way. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, we're going to talk about what that looks like a little bit more next week. We're going to unpack what that means. But when you speak with the tongues of men and of angels, you are kind of at the pinnacle of spiritual gifts. And then he continues. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, that means you can perceive exactly what the Holy Spirit intends for you to say. It's not just foresight about the future. It's foresight about what God is doing in our midst right now and speaking to what God is calling us to do and to be. And then he says, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, imagine being able to answer every single question, knowing to, or to solve every single riddle. Questions like, when is Jesus coming back? 
or what's the perfect explanation of baptism so that Calvinists and Anabaptists can finally get along and, you know, have unity with each other? Or, or why are the Vancouver Canucks so bad? You know, like all the important questions. Mysteries will be solved forever. What about this? If I have faith that can move mountains. We talked about this one last week. Could you imagine if everyone came to my place and we looked out at Mount Baker, someone stood out in the front and they said, Mount Baker, be moved. And it rose from its foundations and it was thrown into the sea. Could you imagine the press? Could you imagine the impact that would have on the watching world? And they say, how did that happen? What does that look like? Who did that? By what power did that happen? And then finally, he even gets extremely personal. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and I give my body over to hardship, some translations say to the flames, so that I may boast. I mean, talk about radical generosity, right? As the offering plate goes by, some of us, you know, we throw in a couple of bucks and yet here's a person who not only gives all that they have, but they give all that they are. They give their entire body over to the gospel. They say, there's, there's no limit to which I will not give myself over to this cause. And yet to all of those things, to every single one of them, Paul has the audacity to say, even if all those things are true of you, if you have not love, you gain, what's the word? Nothing. Nothing. And I don't know if we believe that. Just like last week, I, I think we are challenged to comprehend the seriousness of the words that we're reading. I shared with you last week that the greatest of spiritual gifts is repentance and faith. A heart of stone becoming a heart of flesh. We say, really? Really? Are you sure? Is that a greater gift than lifting up Mount Baker and throwing it into the sea? And this week, the audacity of Paul's words is you can have all the greatest spiritual gifts there are, but if you have not love, you've gained nothing. Do we believe that? Because I think some of us might go, well, you know, we don't gain a whole lot. I see what you're saying, but it's got to be hyperbole, right? It's got to be some sort of exaggeration for us to understand the seriousness of his words. But if we had prophecy and power and divine teaching and healing and all those things, that's not nothing, Paul. And he says, yes, it's nothing. It's nothing if we have not love. Love is everything in the Christian life. It's everything. Jesus said that you could reduce everything in the Christian teaching down to two commands. And these words that he summarized are the same words that uh, we used when we were in Egypt, Jordan, and Israel. Every single morning, we recited the Shema. And so I have it up on the screen here for you, the Shema. And here's why I, a little exercise. For those of you who are on the trip, say it loud and proud with me. You can try. If you can read this, say it with me. We're going to recite it in Hebrew, and then we're going to recite it in English. So here we go. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloheka, Bekol Lavaka, Uvakol Nafshaka, Uvakol Meodeka, Ve'ahavta Reaka Kamoka. 
You guys did such a great job. Now, here's the reason why I put you through that exercise. Because in um, our Jewish understanding of the word Shema, Shema literally means to hear. But to our Jewish Christian friends, they understand that there are four layers of hearing. The first one is to hear but not to understand, like we all just did. Like, what, what is this? What does this mean? What does Eloheinu mean? I don't, I don't know. I hear it, but I don't understand it. Now let's try something different. We're going to recite it in English and see if we do better than how we did it in Hebrew. You ready? Here it is. Say it with me. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You did a better job. Great job. So now you hear and you understand. But there's two more layers of hearing that we need to comprehend, and we're going to get there. Hang on to this. We're going to get to layer three and four in just a moment. So perhaps you're now thinking to yourself, why would anyone do something like offer their body to be burned for the sake of the gospel if they were not motivated out of a Shema, out of a love for God, to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, to love their neighbor as themselves? If not that, then what possible motivation could they have to do all those good things? To do all those good deeds. What's the secret motivation of their heart? And that's a great question. And, and my prayer this entire week has been that the Lord would give you the eyes to see and the ears to hear how every single person in this room does this all the time. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I, I just got to give a forewarning. I, I, think, I think these words and the message that we're going to hear this morning is going to pinch. It's going to be difficult to hear. Because in this text, we come across an important principle that we find all over Scripture, but very few people grasp its significance. Very few people begin to more fully understand the ways in which we do treacherous things, even when we do good things. So let me give you the principle, and then we'll unpack it together. Here's the principle that John is laying at our feet that I put in your note sheet. It's just as easy to be filled with pride and selfishness by being very, very good as it is by being very, very bad. Think about that. It's just as easy to be filled with pride and selfishness by being very, very good as it is by being very, very bad. Do you believe that's true? Is that possible? This, by the way, is the story of Luke 15, the parable of the lost sons, greater known as the parable of the lost son. How's the story go? You have two sons, an elder brother and a younger brother. The younger brother comes up to his father and he demands his inheritance. He says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Which in the ancient Near East, for a son to say that is the equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. Because in that time, the only time in which the inheritance is taken apart is after the patriarch dies. So here's the son. He's saying, you know what? I'm sick and tired of living under this house. I'm tired of living under your rules. Why don't you hurry up and die already? And because I don't want a relationship with you, why don't you give me my inheritance now and I can run off and get, un get out from under your thumb? And it breaks the father's heart. 
And at great expense to himself, he dissolves the family inheritance and he gives the inheritance to his son. And his son runs off and scripture says he engages in wild and reckless living and he spends all that he has. But meanwhile, the part of the story that we often overlook is that the elder brother is doing exactly the same thing. And we miss it. We miss it. The elder brother is doing exactly the same thing. He just has a different strategy. The elder brother doesn't want a relationship with the father. He doesn't love the father. He loves himself. And because he loves himself and he's motivated to do good to get what he wants, he chooses to stay home. He complies. He obeys. He observes the will of his father. But the goal is give me what I want. Give me what I want. And we see that's the desire of his heart. When the younger brother comes home, the father reinstates him. And what does that mean? That is at great expense to the inheritance of the elder brother. Both of them are doing the same thing. So what that means is you can run from God by being very, very bad, like the younger brother. But you can also run from God by being very, very good. And the desire of your heart isn't, I love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. It's, I love myself with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. I love me, and I want what's coming to me. And so I will be moral, I will comply, I will obey, I will observe all of God's righteous rules, but it's only a ploy to get what I want. God, give me salvation. God bless my life. I want health. I want wealth. I want happiness. I want smooth roads. And this is the type of relationship where I'm going to scratch your back, God, if you scratch mine. And all of it is filled with platitudes, filled with good deeds, but there is no love for God. There's no love for God. And I'm telling you, this is one of the messages that we so overlook all the time and only you can answer the question do I have the heart of an elder brother even in observance of God's righteous rules Augustine's, uh, he, uh, Augustine once gave a definition of sin not merely as doing bad things that are contrary to God's will that's how we typically think about sin right but his definition is very different he said that sin is homo incurvatus in se, which is Latin for this, the human being curved in on himself, the human being curved in on herself. And so you've, you've heard me talk about that before, that our sin nature is like a heart of stone curved in on itself, turned away from God. And a heart of flesh is when it comes out and it recognizes that God is the Lord of all. And I love him for his glory, for his beauty, for his grandeur. I love him for him. Him, not for what he gives me and so I think that's exactly right we can't just think about sin in terms of doing bad things we have to ask ourselves what are the motivations for doing anything good at all is it possible that the secret motivation of our hearts when we do good things is to get God to do what we want him to do, to use him like a utility, to commodify the gifts of God, to be more interested in the gifts of God than the giver of the gifts. 
Is it possible for us to have a heart like that? In which case, you're just trying to get control over God. You're just seeking things from God. And open your heart, this might sting, but, but what that reveals is you don't love God, you love yourself. You don't love God. You love yourself. I think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. He says this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Now, hold on, Paul. No one seeks God? Is that true? Like, is that really true? Like, look around. We're all here. Very clearly, some of us are seeking God, right? And yet, look at a little bit closer at what Paul is saying and what he isn't saying. Paul is not saying no one seeks blessings from God. Of course we do. Or no one seeks answers to prayers from God. Of course we do. Or no one seeks forgiveness from God. Of course we do. But if you look closer, what is he saying? He's saying no one seeks God. No one seeks him for him. For his glory, for his beauty, like Adam was able to do in the garden in the cool of the day to walk with God, to enjoy God, to bless God for him. To say, I want you for you, not for your gifts, not for the things that you give me. I want a relationship with you. Paul says, no one does that. No one seeks God. We seek after God's things. And so Paul says to this little church in Corinth, with all their spiritual gifts, all your so-called serving and doing good is actually just for yourself. And it's ugly. And so while we often think of sin as something that only happens when we do something bad, the Shema says what it says. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Do we have a faith like that that says, God, I love you. I love you for you. I want to know you more. I want to abide in you. I can't wait to pray with you. I can't wait to sit under your teaching. I can't wait to learn more about you just for you. Do we have a relationship with God like that? Because as we see in verse 4, Paul shows us a better way. And as I read this, I want to invite you, every time where um, the word love is used, put, put your own name there and allow it to be an audit on the type of love that you have. So I'm going to use my name, but I invite you as you hear the words coming out of my mouth that you would use your own. Justin is patient. Justin is kind. Justin does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. Lord, forgive me. Love does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Justin does not delight in evil. Ha ha, got you. But he rejoices with the truth. Justin always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perse perseveres. 
Justin's love never fails. Do you feel it? Do you feel just how far we are from that? Does it break your heart as it breaks mine? It was hard just to say the words, let alone to believe them. Is there anyone in this room who has a love like that? A marriage like that? Relationships like that? A love in which you treat not only your friends, but your enemies like that? So I want to get really practical with you for a moment. What are, what are some of the secret motivations in our heart that lead us to do good things like all the gifts of the Spirit? Preaching, teaching, prophecy, power, healing, help, hospitality, all these good things. Are there secret motivations of our heart that lead us to do these good things for selfish reasons? For selfish reasons? Can I just share a couple of them with you? I, I, I outlined three in your note sheet. Here's the first one. Here's the first selfish motivation to do good with respect to your neighbor. This is when you love your neighbor's usefulness more than you actually love your neighbor. You love your neighbor's usefulness more than your neighbor. It's been a couple years since I shared this story. Um, some of you might remember it. It's a story from Dr. Ed Clowney. He was the former president of Westminster Seminary. And uh, he shared a little bit of a story that went like this. What happens when a wife asks her husband, why do you love me? What a dangerous question. Oh, man. Why do you love me? Now, here's, here's what he said. He said, here's what you don't say. Husbands, write this down. Here's what you don't say. Well, I love you, honey, because... You're serviceable to me. I added everything up. I, I looked at all the other women in my life and I said, of all the women that I think that I can get to commit to me, I think she's going to help me most to achieve my personal goals. She's going to give me my greatest sense of personal well-being. She's probably the most compatible person to operate with based on my needs and my wants and my desires. And so, here's what I did, honey. I, I threw everything in the computer algorithm, and guess what? You're the lucky one, honey. What's she going to say? Probably not a lot. Not all day, not all week. It's going to be a bad news show. Why? Why? Because you didn't express your love for her. You expressed your love for yourself. You just express to your wife that she is serviceable to you, to your functions, your needs, your wants, your desires. You just showed your narcissism, not your love for your spouse. And that is why anything other than love itself is not a good enough reason. So you can say to your wife something like, honey, I love you because you're beautiful. And she's going to ask, what happens when my beauty fades? What happens when wrinkles come? What happens if I let myself go? Will you still love me then? Oh, no, 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 honey. The reason why I love you is because you're so kind. Well, what happens if, if, you know, I have a moment of weakness and I'm unkind? Well, no, the reason I love you is because you're patient. Well, what happens if I lose my patience? Will you still love me then? No, no, no. The reason I love you is because you're just so compassionate. Well, what happens if, if I have a moment of weakness and I don't have compassion? Don't you see? Every single iteration or instance of I love you because is ultimately revealing a sense of serviceableness and not love for them. 
And so Dr. Clowney, he said, the only rationale for love that you can give to your spouse is love for love's sake. Love for love's sake. That you would say something like this. This this is what our hearts long for. This is the way that God made us. That we would say something like, I love you because I love you. You can't get behind this love. I love you because I have set my affection upon you and there's no way that you can get underneath that. I love you for love's sake. And when I look at you now, I smile. And when I look at you now, I'm filled with exuberant joy. And when I look at you now, I, I ask the Lord, who are you making this woman to be and how can I join in that? How can I make her bloom? How can I make her flourish? Because my heart bursts with song every single time I see her because I have set my affection upon her. Do you see the difference of those kinds of love? That we would have such a radical sort of love that it's not contingent upon what she does. But I I just love her for who she is. And Paul identifies exactly this in our text. Look at at this with me. Look at verse 4. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. Patience means you do not expect the perfection of others that is only expected on Jesus. That you, you give them a lot of space to work out their challenges and their sin nature. Love is kind. What does that mean? Kindness means you consider their needs more important than your own. You don't treat them like a commodity, like a utility in your own game. It says in verse 4b, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Another word you could use there is arrogant. That means you're not always thinking about yourself. You're not always focused on, on your rights and your entitlements and your way. And then, and then we, we think about this in terms of Augustine's translation of sin, the incurvatus, right? You're turned in on yourself. And what do you do when you have a homo incurvatus in say, when you have that kind of heart? It means you're going to start treating every other human being like a ladder to get where you want to get. And there's two ways you can do this. You can stomp over them or you can massage their back so that they will help you get what you want. Once again, you can do it through the younger brother method of being very, very bad or you can do it through the elder brother method of being very, very good. Both of them lead to the selfishness of our human heart. And the only answer that we can give, the only way that you can begin to discern whether or not you have a selfless kind of love is if you just look with a mirror and say, God, reveal yourself to me. Reveal the secret motivations of my heart. Verse 5, love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. Once again, uh, the Greek word for self-seeking here is as though you are treating someone like a commodity to fulfill your needs. They're like cogs in the machine of your happiness, whether that be emotionally or sexually or relationally or whatever. You treat yourself as the center of the universe. So once again, even in your good deeds, you're not loving your neighbor, you're, you're loving your neighbor's usefulness to you. So here's the second note in your note sheet, a second way that we can be led with a selfish motivation. And it's this, it's a personal love of, and before you fill anything in, I wrote down praise and affirmation, but ask yourself, what motivates you to get what you want? Is it, is it wealth? Is it control? Is it 
Security, I just want everything secure on all sides. I need that control. Is it status? Is it praise? Is it affirmation? You fill it in. You fill that in. And so in this instance, what you're really after is the affirmation and the affirmation of other people. And you can use even good things to get what you want. Our desire for all these things will always produce pride. It will always produce pride. It'll produce a lack of self-control. It will produce a lack of kindness, a lack of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's a, a cheap, knockoff kind of love. And one more thing on this before I move on. Um, look again at verse 5. It says this, Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. And so I want you to see here is this sort of cheap love will never care enough to speak up when a friend is doing something that's hurting them. So let me just give you an example of this. If we can go to the next slide, please. Can we go to a blank slide? Thank you, sir. I've shared this image with you before, thinking about someone who's about to drive off a cliff. And you are there, and you know that the pattern of their heart, the pattern of their actions is going to lead them towards self-destruction. There's two different ways that we can respond to something like this. There's a religious left response. There's a religious right response. And they just so happen to be also a, a political left, I'm kind of sensing, and a political right response. What's the left response? The left is acceptance. Right? Just love them for who they are. Let them make their own choices. And even as they're blazing off the cliff, I don't love them enough to stand in, that st- in the gap and to say, this is going to hurt you. I love you enough to tell you that even if it comes at the expense of your reputation with them, that you would lovingly and carefully try to steward the relationship to plead with them not to hurt themselves. So the religious left response is to say nothing. But the religious right response, what is that? It's equally dangerous. It's where you say, that person's an idiot. They're so stupid. I can't believe they would make decisions like that. They're the reason why Canada's going to hell in a handbasket. They're my enemy. We have all these sort of motivations where we're filled with anger and rage on account of the decisions that they're making. And yet, Paul is saying that if you truly love your neighbor, you will rejoice in the truth. Because you know that it will lead to human flourishing for all who follow and believe. It will lead to shalom, peace, and justice, and harmony. But only if we love our neighbor as ourselves. Only if we love our neighbor more than we love ourselves. And so that leads to my third point. I shared with you two selfish motivations to do good towards your neighbor. Here's the selfish motivation to do good toward God. It's the same as number one. It's where you love God's usefulness more than you love God. See, when someone is useful, it means they're a helpful tool to get what you want. So here's a story I shared once before. I think it was a couple years ago. I want to share it again with you. It's a story from Charles Spurgeon called The Carrot and the Horse. A story of a great carrot farmer who showed up in the court of a king with a huge carrot. The biggest carrot the king had ever seen. And the farmer said, King, 
when I harvested the carrot, I knew it was deserving of a king. And so I'm bringing it here to honor you, to express my appreciation for you as king. You have led us well and justly. You've protected our borders and I am your devoted servant. Thank you for being such a great king. And then he went to leave and the king stopped him because he was moved. And the king said, you know, I happen to own all the land around your farm, 300 acres, and I can tell that you are an excellent farmer. I want to give you these 300 acres as a gift. And the farmer was overjoyed, and he went rejoicing. Well, one of the king's noblemen was standing there, and he thought, wow, if the, if the king gives 300 acres of land for a carrot, imagine what he will give for a real gift. And so from there, he ran out and he looked for the most beautiful, magnificent horse that he could find. And there he found it, a beautiful, powerful, tamed black stallion, befit for a king. And he bought it at great expense to himself. And then he brought it to the king's palace. He paraded it in and he said, oh, great king, here is a horse just for you. And when I saw this horse, I knew that only a king should have this. And so I am your humble servant. I give you this horse. And the king said, thank you. And the nobleman was confused. And he was about to walk away. And before he did, the king, who was very wise and knew the nobleman was giving the horse to himself in order to get something from the king, he said this. He said these words. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving the horse to yourself. See, when you do good works to earn anything from God, the good works are inherently selfish. You're not serving God because he's beautiful. You're serving God because he's useful. You're not serving God because you love him. You're serving God because you love yourself. And it's interesting to me, um, if you look back a little bit, you see in verse 3, he says that they're nothing more than a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It's interesting, in the first century in Corinth, there was the temple of Dionysius. And the way that they got the attention of their gods was to bang on gongs. And so you'd hear it throughout Corinth, gong, 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 gong. So instantly, Paul's readers, they know what Paul just said. He said, you know, all your good deeds, all your religiosity, it's nothing more than pagan worship wrapped up in Christian clothing. And it's detestable in God's eyes and in his sight. I know that's a lot of bad news. And so at this point, you're probably thinking, all right, Justin, we get it. Loving actions wrapped up in selfish motivations is not love. So what does it look like to get the real thing? How do we get that? How do we get that Shema kind of love? I put it this way in your note sheet. Love of this kind has to be received before it can be given. Do you remember the, the, the four types of hearing in the Shema? You hear, but you don't understand. You hear, but you do understand. You hear, and you are captivated, and you are moved. That's the third layer of hearing. But even those three is not the purpose of the Shema. The fourth is the most critical. You hear, you understand, you are moved, 
and it moves you. It moves you to act out of grateful obedience to what God has already done. We don't treat God as a commodity. We say to ourselves, God, what could I possibly give you in light of everything you've already given me? I see your beauty. I see your grandeur. I see your sacrifice on the cross. I see the gift of your Holy Spirit. All of them are are gifts. How could I possibly repay you? I can't. And in all of my religiosity, it is like filthy rags before you, Paul says. It's nothing. I can't give you anything. And so all I can do is give you myself as a fragrant offering to you. God, I love you for you. And so we have to see it in the cross. When, when we look at this story in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we should see that Jesus is the only person who truly fulfilled the essence of love. Look again at it with me really quickly. We see that Jesus was patient and kind, right? Jesus considered our needs higher than his own and he bore his own body on the cross and he bore our sins there. Jesus did not envy or boast. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself of glory and he made himself a servant to save all. Jesus was not arrogant or rude. Jesus did not insist on his own way. In in fact, he, he prayed in the garden, not my will, but your be done while he sweat blood. Jesus was not irritable or resentful. He was a friend of sinners, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Jesus did not rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoiced with the truth. He bore all things. He believed all things. He hoped all things. He endured all things. His love would not let go until he could declare boldly from the cross, it is finished. For Justin, for you. And then we begin to understand the reason why John says what he says in 1 John chapter 4. He says this, we love Why do we love? Because he first loved us. Because he first loved us. Only by soaking yourself in the love of God will you love God and others and where you will be able to say the Shema with conviction. God, I want to love you with my whole heart. I want to love you with all my soul. I want to love you with all my strength. And so here's how I want to end this morning. I'm I'm going to invite the praise team to come up. But friends, I, I really don't want you to let this moment go by. I think it's so, so easy to hear God's word and to say, I hear it, I understand it, I'm moved by it. I might talk about it in the lobby. I might talk about it at lunchtime and say, wow, that was pretty cool. Man, that was good. But it doesn't do anything to influence or impact my life. Does it move you? Does it change you? And so maybe, just maybe this morning, you're saying, you're kind of like the younger brother and you're saying to God, God, I'm, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of running away from you. I'm tired of segmenting my life and saying, I'll give this to you, but not that, not that, not that, not that. That's for me. I'm tired of doing that. I need to give it over to you. Or maybe, just maybe, you're a little bit more like the elder brother and you're saying, God, I've been in your house for decades. I've been following you in obedience, but but I'm realizing now that I've been treating you like a utility 
And it has been mostly revealed in the lack of my prayer life, the lack of my desire to get into the word, the lack of my desire to know you more for who you are. And I need to repent of that. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series, focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.